The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. For example, with politicians, if they truly have made a mistake and learned and grown from that, what ends up happening is the other side will label them. And it could be something like a flip-flopper, and it could be uh, just changing with the wind, or there's going to be any number of negative attributes put towards that person, because unfortunately, that's how politics are played. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Episode 9 of Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. I am your host, Becky Saltzman, and today we're going to be delving into the art and science of ethical persuasion and influence with the chief influence officer at Influence People, Brian Ahern. Brian is a trainer, keynote speaker, coach, and consultant who specializes in applying the science of influence and persuasion in everyday situations. He's one of a handful of people in the world who's trained and certified to teach Dr. Robert Cialdini's principles of persuasion as a Cialdini Method Certified Trainer. He is a prolific writer. He was named one of the top 100 influencers of 2016 by the science of digital marketing. His blog, Influence People, has readers in 200 countries and was named one of the top 30 psychology blogs of 2012. He has been cited in several books, including Yes, 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive, The Small Big, and Introducing Persuasion, A Practical Guide. You can also find him at 4 a.m., in the gym, working out, or at the Taekwondo dojo, practicing and honing his second-degree black belt skills, or sipping fine scotch. Because not only is he an expert in persuasion, he's a wonderfully fun guy. In addition to enjoying this episode, you're going to come away with some amazing actionable bits. And this is important because as it turns out, the vast majority of the time that we open our yappers or click on the keyboard or post on our phones, social media or conversations across the Thanksgiving table or at a bar or in a sales situation, the vast majority of the time we're communicating, there is some element where we are attempting to persuade or entice or cajole or convince or influence or sell or arouse. And the science of how to do this well is really well documented and clear. And yet, there seems to be somewhat of a disconnect. And you can see this disconnect in our discourse in social media or our attempt to persuade people to understand our point of view or even persuade them to see things like we see them. And this disconnect could be remedied somewhat by applying some of these principles of persuasion. And I think when you come away from this podcast, you'll be able to do exactly that. So a little bit about what we talk about in this episode. We talk about the principles and particularly the principle of reciprocity. And we talk about how Brian has used that on his wife and daughter and how they have used it on him. Talk about the principle of liking and how to strategically find uncommon commonalities and social proof and the role of leadership in social proof and the role of followership in social proof. And we touch upon how perhaps the idea of being a good follower is underrated. We talk about authority and and the best way to use authority to be more persuasive without seeming braggadocious. And consistency, and this seems to be a big one, because consistency is when our words and deeds line up and the pull we feel toward consistency is intense. But it also pokes at a problem that we see in politics, and even with our friends and for ourselves, which is how do we not seem like a flip-flopper and still learn from our mistakes? And then we talk about scarcity and how to use scarcity ethically and additional persuasive concepts like comparing and contrasting or anchoring. 
and the magic of the word because. And you're going to want to stick around for the magic of the word because if you have an email to write, hold off until you listen to this episode because if you're going to be convincing anyone of anything, you might want to hear about how to use this in this magical and very easy way. Anyway, I think you're going to really get a lot out of this episode. I know I did. Without further ado, here is Brian Ahern. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me on Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. I have wanted you on this podcast, and I'm so excited that you're here. It's my pleasure, Becky. Anything I can do to help you? Well, thank you. So you are one of a couple of handfuls of people in the entire world that are trained and certified to teach Dr. Robert Cialdini's Principles of Persuasion as a Cialdini Method Certified Trainer. And you travel the world to train people and corporations to apply this science. This is the science of ethical persuasion. Cialdini's book, Influence, that revealed these principles, I think it's been out for over three decades and sold millions of copies, and it's arguably the best-selling business book of all time. These principles of persuasion are the foundation of how we get anyone to think and do anything. And, And when you couple those facts with the fact that the vast majority of the time that we communicate, we open our yappers, we wave our signs, we tap our screens, that we're attempting in some way to influence, persuade, cajole, entice, convince, sell, or even arouse, these powerful principles are out there. Why do we still get it so wrong? Well, I think it's one of the things that uh, people just never give thought to. It's like listening. Listening is one of the skills that people are worst at, and yet they're doing it every single day. And we are trying to persuade every single day. In fact, I like to tell audiences from the moment that we come out of the womb, we are trying to persuade. Now, we're not conscious of that, but what does a baby do? They cry. Why? We have to figure out, is it because they're cold? Do they want to be held? Do they need to be burped? Are they hungry? But they have a need, and they're doing something to try to get that need met. And then it just continues from there. But a lot of people never stop to think about, what am I doing well? How is it helping me? What am I doing poorly? How is it hurting me? So that they can refine their ability to be more persuasive. What's preventing them from curiously exploring this. I mean, these uh, these methods are available. We're tr- we know we're trying to convince people of something. Sometimes maybe we're not as conscious of it, but a lot of times we're really actively trying to sell something or get a date or convince someone to agree with us. What's preventing people from taking a step back and actually applying the principles? Well, I do think that one of them is just because they're doing something all the time, they think that they're probably pretty good at it. Most people have a overestimation of themselves in terms of how smart they are, how good looking they are, and they probably think they're more persuasive than they are. The second thing is probably that they don't know that it's a field of study, and it's been a field of study for some seven or more decades now. So they've never thought, well, maybe I could learn something about this to get better at it. And so they just meander through life. Sometimes they get what they want, sometimes they don't, but they could get much better at it if they understood the science behind it and then started looking for practical application. So here are the principles of persuasion, and then I would like an opportunity for you to describe each of these. Reciprocity, liking, social proof, then there's authority, consistency, scarcity, and then there are some extras like compare and contrast and because. How how would you describe each of these? Well, if we start with reciprocity, reciprocity is the principle that says people feel a natural obligation to want to give back to those who first give to them. And we're conditioned from this one, almost from birth. Anybody listening to this, if they've raised children, they have either taught their children these words or their parents taught them, thank you. And so from the time that we are very, very little, when somebody does something for us, we are taught to say thank you. That's a form of reciprocity, right? Someone does something, there's an expectation, I do something in return. And then as we grow older, We learn more sophisticated ways to repay the favor, so to speak, but it's conditioned almost from childhood for every one of us. So that's one of the first principles that we talk about. The principle of liking is a pretty simplistic principle. It's easier for people to say yes to those they know and like. That's almost like, duh, I know that. But where people stumble a lot is they don't really know what causes one person to like another. And we talk about that in workshops that I lead. What can I do? that would make you like me more, Becky. But more importantly, what can I do 
to actually come to like you so that I really want to serve you, which opens you up even more to something that I may ask of you down the road. Is that more powerful? I mean, is it more powerful or is it just easier to find reasons to like other people than to try to figure out how they can like us? I wouldn't say it's easier. I think most people go in thinking, how can I get you to like me? And then if you do it with too much gusto, I guess, you come off like a used car salesman who you get that sense, hey, you're only pulling these levers to get me to like you, so I'll do what you want. But I try to teach people the very same things that would cause you to like me. So, for example, if we find out that we went to the same college, grew up in the same hometown, cheer for the same team, you will like me more. But if, if we find that we have things in common, you, you tend to like that person more because you view them as being a little bit more like you. And we naturally like things that we associate positively with ourselves. But what people don't stop to think about is that same psychology that would make you like me will make me like you. And so I should go into relationship building opportunities with the mindset of, I want to come to like my customers. I want to come to like my coworkers. I'm going to apply this principle not to get them to like me, but so I can come to like them and I can enjoy being around them. And that's where people then tend to reciprocate that too. And it's amazing the difference that it can make. It's a subtle change, but it's the difference maker. Hmm. Interesting. And what about social proof? Social proof in another term is called peer pressure. It's funny that when I talk to audiences about this concept, which tells us that, that we are impacted by the behaviors of others. When we see other people doing something, they're thinking something, whatever it may be, that influences us because we tend to grow up and think, you know, everybody can't be wrong. And so we're heavily impacted by what other people do. But I think as people get older, they really resist that a lot. I wrote a blog post not too long ago and people really railed against the fact that if you follow the crowd, you're, you're sheeple, you're, you're just like the herd and it's all about independent thinking. And it's true, great breakthroughs come from independent thinking, where people go against the grain and discover things. But the vast majority of us, the vast majority of the time, aren't trying to do that. We're trying to figure out the right toothpaste to buy, the, the best book to read, uh, what car should I buy? And when we know that lots of other people have liked a book, have bought a car, we get a sense that it's probably a good book, it's probably a good car. And so this principle impacts us far more than people are willing to, to recognize now, when you're raising kids and you call it peer pressure, we don't like peer pressure, right? Because we, we have all these assumptions. It's always about bad things. It's about drinking drugs and sex before kids are old enough to really understand and be able to mentally cope with that stuff. But as we get older, we're still impacted by our peers. All you need to do is walk into any large corporation and look at how people are dressed, how they act, what they do, and you'll see that they're conforming to the norms of their social group. I wonder, though, if we should be embracing the role of followership more than just this push, push, push that we should all be leaders so that we can more effectively know when social proof is something that we should actually be using and when social proof is something that's actually manipulating us. But so actually kind of reversing that, not as how to do it as a leader, but how to effectively be a follower. When you put followership in Google, it, it does it autocorrect and it makes me curious about how we undervalue that role, and particularly with regard to social proof. Well, it's interesting, though, that you bring that up. So as you said that, what rolls through my mind is um, my day job at State Auto Insurance. I run our corporate university, and we're moving from a, a heavily metric-driven performance management organization to more of a coaching culture. And to help make that evolve, one of the things that we've done is we have created a, a coaching course for all associates, not to learn how to be a coach, there's lots of information on that, but how to be coachable. What does it mean to be in that coaching relationship? And, and how do I receive coaching? How do I give and get feedback? How can I then maybe turn and coach my peers? But how do I understand my role, which is somewhat analogous to followership, because I'm not the leader. I am the person who's under the leader. How can I be good at that? Because that also gets you ready to become a leader. Well, the vast majority of the time we are communicating, we're trying to persuade, and the vast majority of the time that we are in existence, we are in existence as followers, whether it's politics, whether it's family dynamic, whether it's corporate dynamic, whether we're just trying to make sense as critical thinkers in the world. So 
Well, I do think in our society too, I mean, uh, America is very individualistic, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps as opposed to more collective societies like a lot of uh, East Asian cultures are more collective. It's about we rather than me. And so, yeah, I do think that there is a lot of that. uh, I don't want to be too much of a follower. I don't want to be too good of a follower. I need to stand out. But you know what? For me, as somebody who, who leads a small part of our organization, I love it when people are good followers. To me, that is also helping them get ready to be leaders because they understand what it takes. Yeah. And I think we talk a lot about followers in the form of they. And it's hard for me because I say, you know, I want they need to be followers. But I have to kind of take a look and say, okay, what about me? It's just an interesting concept because I was like I said, I was Googling the word and it kept auto correcting. And I thought that's very weird because leadership is probably one of the most searched for Google words out there. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me about a time that you have used authority in a very specific way that will give people, listeners, an opportunity to understand the role of authority as one of the persuasive principles. Authority is all about the reality that we will follow the lead of people that we view as being uh, very wise experts in their field. As an example, if two people say the very same thing and you know that one is considered a thought leader, an expert in the field, and you don't know anything about the other person, you're going to believe the thought leader all the time. So sometimes it's not contingent on what's being said or asked as much as it is who is saying it and who is asking it. And so as a funny story, my wife, Jane, is a really big time golfer. She loves golf. When she plays really well, she'll shoot in the mid to upper 70s. So she is a really good golfer. And I had come home from a training session one time. We were eating dinner, and I told her this quick story about how I used a golf analogy. And I, I'd ask people, hey, how many golf? And hands go up. And I said, what do you think when you come up to water? And they'd say, don't go in the water. Don't go in the water. And then we talk about the psychology of that because most of them end up in the water. And, and I would tell them what you need to think about is what you want to do. You know, go left, go left. Don't think about the don't go in the water. So anyway, I tell her this story. Two weeks later, she's reading a book. And she goes, listen to this. And she reads a quote from Corey Pavin. And Corey Pavin uh, at one time was a great golfer. He had finished in the top five of all the majors and he'd won the U.S. Open. And he said almost verbatim what I told her. And I sat there and I said, I told you that. (laughs) And she said, no, you didn't. And I said, yeah, I did a couple weeks ago. Don't you remember? And I described the meal that we were having and the conversation. And she's looking at me like, you're crazy. And I said, oh, if Corey Pavin says it, I guess it's true. But when I say it, it's not. But that is the reality. (laughs) But when Corey Pavin says it, as a top five finisher in all the major championships, people will listen to him. And then they say, Brian Ahern, you're lucky when you break 100. I'm not going to listen to you. Okay, that Um, gives me me a couple of ideas of I'm going to Google some of the things I want my husband to believe. And then I'm going to properly attribute it and i'm going to, to albert i'm gonna to albert to, einstein that's right and i'm going to make and that's exactly how i'm c- going to convince my husband that it's mm. not my opinion it's it's actually albert einstein's opinion that's brilliant i'm yeah. gonna okay thank you for that now on a very specific level when you said you know how have i used that anytime i do a, a public presentation i know that people are going to think who's brian ahern i haven't written a book yet Uh, I haven't been on TV, so I've got some cachet, you know, working for uh, Dr. Cialdini, but I make sure that my bio really hits certain things hard. I make sure that that it's noted that I'm one of only 20 people in the world who's certified by Dr. Cialdini, the most cited living social psychologist in the world on this topic. I make sure that people know that people in more than 200 countries have taken time to read my blog. Just with those couple of facts, all of a sudden people sit up straighter and they lean a little more because they're like, oh, I I don't know who this guy is, but it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And I get a completely different reception than if they didn't know any of that. They just think, oh, who's this insurance guy? If if someone else was to present that authority, does that have more of a persuasive impact than if you're to present that same authority? Absolutely. Because... I would sound like I was bragging if I got up there and and said, let me tell you all these good things about myself. But I have accomplished some good things. But when somebody else says it, for example, when they introduce a speaker, that's totally natural. You expect somebody to come up and say, our guest speaker today is, and then share a quick bio on it. So it's always more effective when a third party can introduce you 
That's why people have uh, individuals write the foreword for their books. That's why we have introductions when we do public presentations. That's why I ask my boss here at State Auto, if I travel through our states with some of our field salespeople, I will have him send an email to every insurance agency owner that I will see, and it will almost be like a speaker bio, but he's massaged it for his verbiage. And then it sounds completely natural. By the time I walk in the door, it's, they're not wondering who's the home office guy. They're saying, wow, this is the guy that John told me about. I'm looking forward to meeting him. Okay. That is a good tip for everyone because just to, even if you're wanting to convince someone of something, just asking someone else or handing someone else, even if it's not a formal presentation, just asking someone else to kind of present your authority is probably a good takeaway right there. The consistency one is one that I think about a lot with regard to the whole political landscape and how, what is the difference between being someone that's consistent, being a flip-flopper, and actually learning from your mistakes? And how come we value consistency so much and that we talk out of the other side of our mouth about valuing learning from our mistakes? What is, can you un kind of unwrap this whole consistency thing and as it is a persuasive principle? Consistency tells us that we feel an internal psychological pressure, but we also feel an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do. And I like to just boil it down to this, word and deed. We feel better about ourselves inside when our words and deeds line up, and we also know we look better to other people when our words and deeds line up. So this principle is extremely powerful. It drives a lot of behavior. On the negative side, though, for example, with politicians, if they truly have made a mistake and learned and grown from that, what ends up happening is the other side will label them. And it could be something like a flip-flopper, and it could be uh, just changing with the wind, or there's going to be any number of negative attributes put towards that person, because unfortunately, that's how politics are played. You get outside of politics, and I think for the most part, Americans are pretty darn forgiving. When people step up to the plate and admit that they did something wrong or made a mistake, quite often after the initial backlash, people end up praising that person. And we've seen people who have been of poor character come back to good character by admitting their mistakes. An example would be on the negative side, A-Rod, when he was playing for the Yankees and he was caught with performance enhancing drugs and he continued to deny it. There was big backlash on that. But take a look at Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods got caught in his scandal, very quickly he stood at the podium and he said, I have a problem. And he checked into rehab. And no matter what you think about how authentic was he, he at least stood up right away and said his prior behavior was wrong and he was looking to change. And for the most part, people embraced that. When he came back, he was as popular as ever. People weren't focusing on what he did. They were focusing on the fact that he was trying to change. So it can be very positive. But I think what you need to really resist is the labeling that might come from people who oppose you. Because I do think that some politicians probably genuinely grow in terms of their understanding of something and ultimately change positions. But I've become just as jaded to politicians as the next guy. And sometimes I see it and I'm like, it's in vogue now. So you're saying it so you can get that vote. Well, I wonder sometimes if you kind of step out as a person, just a regular person on social media, for example, and you step out with all of these opinions that you support a candidate, you support a platform, you're a member of a particular wing, and then all of a sudden someone points that out to you, are you less likely to absorb new information and be curious enough about where, where you might be wrong because you're so worried about that sense of inconsistency. I think that can be a real curiosity killer, frankly. I think it can. I wrote a blog post many years ago called Why Facebook Doesn't Change Anybody's Opinion. And I think it's because when I put something out into the public forum and somebody contends with that, I don't probably sit there and go, huh, that's a really good point. I never thought of that. I feel this need to defend myself. And oh, by the way, umpteen number of people could be looking at this post and, and watching what's going on. And so it's not at all like sitting down and having a drink or having coffee with somebody and just having a dialogue where you can feel free to put something on the table and somebody might counter that. And you might think, you know, I, I know you, I like you, and I've never thought of that before. That's interesting. I'm going to have to think about that. Or I want to find out more about that. 
it's not really a dialogue. It's, it's people just putting out their opinions and then trying to defend them. And so to your point about being a curiosity killer, yeah, I, I think it absolutely can be. Because this this one's a perfect example where we, I think everybody listening to this would clearly get it that like, yeah, you know, once I've made a statement, I feel this need to hold to it. The big mistake that people make with this one, and this goes back to your original question about why don't people, why aren't they better at this if we're trying to communicate and persuade all the time? We are quite often a product of how we're raised. And so if your parents raised you, for example, telling you what to do, they're never engaging this principle. They might be engaging some authority because they are in a position of authority over you, but they're never really engaging this principle. And so I like to share this example. When our daughter, who's now 21 and and doesn't live at home, when she was a teenager, it was not uncommon for my wife to say, Abigail, empty the dishwasher, right? It's pretty clear, straightforward, easy to understand. We'd go to work, she'd go to school, we'd come home, dishwasher not empty. We might go to bed, Abigail comes home later, I get up in the morning, dishwasher not empty. And you can imagine if you've raised kids, especially in the teenage years, how that conversation probably goes between mom and daughter at that point. Abigail, I told you to empty the dishwasher. I didn't hear you. I will. I'm busy. All of those excuses. But my wife wasn't tapping into the principle of consistency. I, on the other hand, would have said, Abigail, would you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? And if she said, no, I can't, I'm in a hurry, I would have said, okay, time out. Will you empty it as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? And she would almost always say yes to that. And there's more psychology in that. But she would almost always say yes to that because I had engaged the principle of consistency. I wasn't telling her what to do. I was asking. And once she verbalized that she would do it, the odds of her following through were much, much greater than if I just told her. So that's a simple example where people are always, and leaders do this too, telling people what to do rather than asking, and they're not engaging this principle. They could get more people doing what they want by creatively asking the right questions to get them to say yes, and then they'll naturally take those steps. How important is it? And I think there's an example of a restaurant in Chicago, and I actually use this in practice a lot, but how important is it to actually extract the yes versus, hey, you know, be sure, will you be sure to do that, blah, 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 and not wait for that answer? How important is it to wait for that answer? It's incredibly important. In the example that that you're talking about, Gordon Sinclair, who was the restaurant owner in the Chicago area, had a no-show rate of 30% when the hostess would say, please call if you can't keep your reservation. Again, it's clear, straightforward. You'd have to be hearing impaired to not know what's expected of you. But 30% of the time, people didn't show up or call up. When they added two words, will you, to change that statement into a question, will you please call if you can't make your reservation, pause, People are uncomfortable with pause. They're going to fill it. And they filled it with, yeah, sure, no problem. And their no-show dropped from 30 to 10%. Because as I like to say, they either called up or showed up. Either way, Gordon Sinclair got to fill those tables. That's a big, big difference. If you put numbers to that, depending on the number of tables and how often they're open, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially by changing a statement into a question. It would be interesting to try that across the Thanksgiving table this fall when you're into those kind of deep political discussions just to say something like, I mean, I'm just curious, this is how my mind works, but I'm just curious how how it will look to say, would there be anything that I could ever say to you, present to you that would allow you to open your mind or change your mind? As far as would that be a question? Yeah, to, I mean, just it just asking people if it if there's anything, for example, dipping into politics for a second, if you were talking to someone who despised Donald Trump, mm-hmm. just asking this question, which I've actually tried a number of times, would there be anything that he could do that would in any way change your mind about him, or is there anything that I could say to you? that would convince you that you could be wrong about any aspect of how you evaluate Donald Trump? In uh, Dr. Cialdini's book, Influence, Science, and Practice, he talks about how American POWs, the uh, Chinese use this on Korean POWs. And 
it was just by chipping away little by little, you know, by saying, you know, well, America's not perfect, right? Well, no, America's not perfect. And, you know, all communists aren't terrible and evil, are they? Well, no, you know, probably the average person who lives there isn't. And they kind of chipped away because they would ask those little questions. Of course, they were trying to manipulate them into writing things that would be pro-communist. But that thought process of wanting to just chip away a little bit and by saying, you know, isn't it at least good of all the bad things that you could say about Donald Trump right now? Wasn't it at least good that he struck a deal with the Democrats? I mean, when's the last time a Republican president struck a deal? I mean, can't you at least give me that that is OK? I asked that very question. And then there's the but. But, you know, but that that chipping away is kind of an interesting an interesting technique. Yeah, it's you know, in sales, you call it foot in the door, right? You're not going to go in and, and necessarily uh, write an entire account or, or land the big fish, but maybe you can get a small piece of that account. And that changes the thinking of, of that buyer, because now you're not a prospective salesperson. You're a, you're a vendor who's dealing with them. It's kind of the same thought process, I think, in wanting to change somebody's mind when it's something that's really big, whether whether they're a staunch Democrat or a staunch Republican, to to at least get them to move to the middle to consider of a viewpoint other than their own, it's probably a little bit better to just get foot in the door, gain some trust, gain some credibility, ask the right question, get them to think a little different. And now it might be easier to ask a second question and a third question. And now you're actually having a dialogue. When you think about the principles and you think about the principles being called the principles of ethical persuasion, they're not entirely different principles than would be used in effective manipulation. And that makes me think particularly of the principle of scarcity and how often scarcity is used as a principle of manipulation. So I guess the two questions are, can you unpack scarcity for us? And then also, how different are these principles when used for ethical persuasion or manipulation? Aren't they, aren't they the same principles for both? So let's start with scarcity. Scarcity is the psychological concept that says we value things more when we believe they're rare or diminishing, if they're going away. We just then, all of a sudden, we naturally want them more. And here's a personal example. Several years ago, I get on a Southwest flight. I'm usually boarding in the A group, sit down, get comfortable. Flight attendant comes over and says, excuse me, sir, but you're sitting in the row in front of the exit row, which means you can't put your seat back. And my response, that's okay. Because once the plane takes off, my seat's upright. I'm not one of the people who throws it back and jams your tray into your belly or your knees into your chin. And, and so I usually have my laptop out and I'm reading, writing, and I'm doing something. So I told her, I said, that's okay. Thank you. Plane starts to fill up. Seat feels a little uncomfortable. Cabin door closes. We start backing away. Seat feels real uncomfortable. And by the time that plane was going down the runway and taking off, I am mentally kicking my you-know-what because I didn't move. And that seat felt so darn uncomfortable the entire flight. Now, here's the reality. I've flown many times in the last two and a half, three years. I don't think I put my seat back once. But boy, once I knew I couldn't, that's all I wanted. That was an example of, of scarcity. I teach the stuff. I was fully conscious of what was going on. And yet that seat still felt darn uncomfortable. So it was, what would you call that? A limited, it's not a limited few. It's not a, a, a limited it's, amount of time. Was, well, I had, I had a lost opportunity. I could have moved and I didn't. And then I, the pain of regret begins to set in. Why didn't I move? Darn it, the seat's not feeling comfortable. And, and my mind begins to obsess about it. And human beings feel the pain of regret a lot. People usually don't regret the things they've done. They regret the things they didn't. Right. I wish I would have gone out with her. I wish I would have taken that job. What if I had traveled Europe before I you know, jumped into my career, we all, you know, we, those what ifs nag at us. And so that was kind of what was happening to me. You know, what if I would have moved? It would have been a lot comfortable. I could have put my seat back if I wanted to, even though I almost never do when I'm flying. So that's, that is kind of a descriptor for, for scarcity. Now, what's interesting about this is conceptually when I talk about it and when I give examples, people get it right away. I mean, they, they clearly know like, oh yeah, People are going to be much more motivated by losing than they are by gaining. And then those very same people go out and try to motivate behavior by talking about gain. So as an example, it's, it's much more effective to talk about you know, how much money you might lose if you continue to overpay on your phone bill by not switching to a certain carrier. 
But what do the carriers do? Most of them talk about how much you'll save by making that move. And that does motivate some behavior, but studies show that you're going to be more motivated by thinking about wanting to avoid loss. In fact, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in this area for his work with Amos Tversky, where they statistically proved humans feel the pain of loss anywhere from two to two and a half times more than the joy of gaining the very same thing. So a lot of people who are trying to motivate behavior are still doing it wrong. We rail against it, though, when we see politicians, because we see just what I would call fear mongering, that rather than telling us what they can do for us, they've gone so far to the other side that it's all about the negative. And and people are getting sick and tired of it. But unfortunately, in this last election, we had two people who, no matter who was going to get elected, they would be labeled the most disliked, distrusted person ever to enter the Oval Office. It was a no-win situation for the vast majority of people. Okay, so you said that people are getting sick and tired of it, but does that necessarily mean that it becomes less effective? No, they're not so sick and tired of it that politicians have abandoned it. I think that it's going to take a different kind of candidate within a different context to be able to pull it off, to move away from the extreme negativity that we have. And I I don't know, it's going to be really interesting at the next election, assuming Donald Trump is still president and wants to try to run again, it will be very interesting to see, does he double down? Is it going to be that much worse? Or how's that other candidate going to handle it? But I think people are tired of it, but they still respond to it. And yeah. that shows its effectiveness. Yeah, I think when you look at Traversky's and Kahneman's work, it, the the loss aversion doesn't diminish over time. So an awareness and an exhaustion and an annoyance with it doesn't necessarily mean that it's less effective. So I'm not sure that the incentive for doing something other than that is great enough at a human behavior level to mm-hmm. make anyone see it as anything but the most effective way to convince people to do stuff. And even claim that we are not affected by it, even when we are completely affected by it. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not as hopeful, but I'm curious about maybe someone could learn to use loss aversion in a different kind of way or scarcity in a different kind of way. Now, the, there are two other principles that kind of are not in the influence realm as much as these initial principles. And one is compare and contrast. And the other, well, the other is because. And I think it would be interesting to hear about that, these because they are also powerfully effective in how we are persuaded and how we do our persuading. Right. Compare and contrast, we call it a phenomenon. We don't really call it one of the, the principles, but it kind of overarching Every day, we're comparing and contrasting. All you have to think about, if I asked you who was the tallest guy in your high school class, and you tell me a name and how tall he is, I might think, yeah, that's not very tall. My brother's taller than him, or you know, several guys in our high school were, were taller, right? Because we're comparing. What is tall? Tall is only compared to something else. When we talk about how tall people are, because we're comparing them to other people, we're not comparing them to skyscrapers and redwood trees. Right. And and it comes with all kinds of things. Is he smart? Well, compared to who? Is she beautiful? Compared to who? Isn't it amazing how there can be a beauty pageant? You can have the Miss USA or Miss Universe, and you will have some some of the most stunning women in the world standing on stage and people will pick them apart. Oh, you know, I don't like this. I don't like that. And yet if any one of them walked down the street, just right down the street, guys would be falling down. Right. Right. But when they're all compared to each other, we start to lose that ability to say, to, to see the, the differences. And, and so that's kind of what compare and contrast is. Um, we, we talk about it this way. You can dramatically impact how somebody thinks or views or feels about something by whatever you present first. So if I asked you for $5 and then I asked you for $10, well, all of a sudden $10 seems like a lot. It's twice as much as what I just asked you for. But if I started by saying, hey, could I borrow $50, Becky? And you might think, "Eh, I don't have 50 on me. Could I have 10? Oh, no problem, right? All of a sudden 10 seems small. So people who get very good at persuasion understand that whatever they're going to be asking for, how can I frame that in a way that makes that look as good as possible to make it easier for that person to ultimately say yes to me? Has your wife ever used this on you? 
She does all the time. And and what's funny, Becky, is that there are times, even though I teach it, and it goes right over my head. Really? So, yeah, because I, I'm not on alert all the time. I'm not always like dialed in and thinking about everything that's going on and how is that persuasively being used. And so a good example was uh, several years ago when my stepmother turned 65, my wife said, hey, Joe is turning 65 and would love to go to Scotland to golf. Would you mind if I went with her? And my response was, heck no, because whenever you go to Scotland, I want to go to Scotland and now is not the right time. And then she said, well, would you mind if I go down to Florida for the week and play golf with her? I'm like, I don't care. Go ahead. She came back later and said, you know, I never really wanted to go to Scotland, but I knew if I asked for that first, a week in Florida would be a real easy yes. And I said, touche. <laughs> that was well played. Note to self. Uh, but OK. And so the that, other one. Yeah, well, go ahead. Sorry. One other one, Becky. You'll, you'll appreciate this uh, shopping example. I saw one, one day I said to, to my wife, I go, is that a new coat? And she goes, oh, no, I got this last year. Okay. So I'm thinking, oh, it's not new. Now, my mind didn't say, wait a minute, it's January. She <laughs> got it in December. It's technically new, right? But the comparison, I got this last year. I, I didn't even think twice about it until sometime way down the road. She goes, I can't believe you didn't even ask me. I got it in December. It was new, but it was last year. That's hilarious. Well that hilarious. I remember my grandmother describing the fact that she was very aggravated that her water heater had broken and it was brand new. And I asked her how old and it was, you know, well, I got this and it was like 15 years old. I said, Grandma, water heaters, you know, they don't, well, it was brand new to her. She's 99 in the scheme of her life. That was a new water heater. So I guess, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, we <laughs> use this all the time with anchoring effect too. I mean, the anchoring effect is kind of the driving force of this compare and contrast. The only thing I wonder about is, can you go too far? I mean, if your wife had said, hey, can I travel the world with a guy who looks like Brad Pitt? Do you mind? She'd be wanting to travel with me then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay. The George Clooney, you could choose. You can't be both. You could okay. either be, okay. So if she had said that, you'd be like, okay, that's ridiculous. Or if someone said, hey, do you want to pay $10,000 for this cup of coffee or are you okay with $5? There is kind of a realm beyond which it is even reasonable to be an effective technique, right? There are, but that's interesting to try to find that point. There, You can lose credibility if you put out an offer that's ridiculous, right? If I walk into a uh, an automobile dealership and I want to buy a car and I say, I'll give you a dollar for that, right? They're, they're not even going to talk to me. I mean, that's out of the realm of possibility there. But there have been times where there have been extreme proposals put out. And although they weren't necessarily taken, they did put an anchor in that drew people further along. Think about the lady who got burned with the coffee at McDonald's. Now, this wasn't just, they didn't just put out a number, but what they did when she got burned by that like 200 degree coffee, they had originally only asked for like $30,000 compensatory damages, something very low. And when it was rejected and they went to court, they said, well, I think a fair proposition might be two days worth of coffee sales from McDonald's. Now, most jurors didn't know what that amounted to, but they thought, yeah, that sounds fair. That was millions of dollars. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. And and they didn't end up getting the millions, but they got a lot more. They got hundreds of thousands of dollars where they were initially just asking for like 30. So that extreme offer certainly pulled along that potential uh, jury decision. Interesting. Well, I, I, the the last, you, you don't call it a principle, you call it a, what did you call it other than a principle? Because, what did you call that a what? I just call it a, a psychological concept. It's okay, a, so a concept. Great. Yeah, it's a great tip to understand. Well, okay. Um, I think this one is really important in the light of communication over email, for example, because just insinuating the word because as such a powerful, persuasive kind of joiner seems to have a lot of applicability in even electronic communication. So share a little bit about the power of because. There was a fascinating study that was done a long time ago at a photocopy shop. And social psychologists arranged to have people go up when there was a line and they would ask if they could cut in front of the line. Excuse me, may I go ahead of you? I have five copies to make. And 60% of the time people said, sure, go ahead. At a later time, they might go up and say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. Could I go ahead of you because I'm in a rush? And 
94% of the people, yeah, you're in a rush. Sure, go ahead. Then they tried it one more time thinking, well, maybe it's just because they said that they're in a rush. So the third time they'd go up when there's this long line and all day long, they would go up and say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. Could I go ahead of you? Because I need to make these copies. Well, everybody's in line to make copies, right? That's a bogus reason. And 93% of the time, people let them go ahead. So the, the social psychologists theorize that that word because is the trigger. And they theorize that because as we were kids, and your parents might have said it to you, you may have said it to your kids. I know my parents said it to me. If I ever dared ask why, when my mom or dad told me to do something, I got this, because I said so. And I knew at that point, if I didn't do what I was being told or asked to do, there would be a consequence. So the theory is we are raised with that word becoming a trigger of we better take action. And as a persuader, that's good to know because it may not be enough to ask somebody to do something. But if I can tag it with because, I'm going to have a much better chance of getting to yes. So if I go back to my example with my daughter and emptying the dishwasher, I'm more effective if I say, Abigail, would you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school because we have company coming over tonight? Mm. If she says no, again, I can step in and say, will you please do it before you leave for work as soon as you get home from school? Because like I said, we have company coming over. I'm going to get much more opportunity to hear yes by structuring my request that way. So I always tell people, Whatever you're asking, take one more breath, say because, and then tag it with a legitimate reason, and you'll be pleasantly surprised at how much more often people are saying yes to you. That's a great one. And I know that that is wildly effective with email communication. Just be curious about why you're asking something of someone, and then just tack on that because. The best opportunity I think we have is when we do a one-on-one. And and there are some things, too, that, that you can do to set the stage to have a more informed conversation. So let's just assume you and I, if we were on opposite ends of, of any particular topic, if we were going to get together and and I used what Dr. Cialdini calls some persuasion, if I said, you know, Becky, do you consider yourself to be somebody who's open-minded, who at least considers alternatives? And you're probably going to search your memory banks for times where you were open-minded and you're going to say yes, because generally that's a positive trait. My simple act of asking you that and getting you to affirm that will make you a little more open-minded. And then I'd say, you know, I agree, Becky, I I consider myself to be open-minded too. And that's why I want to talk to you about this. Tell me, what are your thoughts about? And I'm going to give you that opportunity to go first. And then hopefully you'll say, well, what are your thoughts? But if you don't, I'm going to say, could I have a moment to share with you, you know, how I view things. And I'm going to then very quickly say, I'm going to start talking about what we have in common and try to build from there. I think a big problem that we have in societies, we're all starting from opposite points. Correct. Right. It, so if you're if you're conservative, it might be that you're for guns or you're for uh, you're uh, anti-abortion. You may have a whole lot of other things in common with the other side, except for maybe one or two of those things. And it could be the same thing with with people who lean much more towards the liberal or democratic side where they're going to say choice is everything. I'm all about choice. And they disregard all the other things that they may have in common. So I'm always encouraging people, find what you can quickly that you have in common and start to build from there. You'll always have a much better chance of meeting in the middle or persuading somebody if you've started and built as opposed to starting on opposite sides, because almost nobody wants to be the first to make the move. Absolutely. And I actually would take that a step further and say that the more uncommon your commonality that you seek is probably even more powerful as a persuasive principle. And, you know, I'm thinking about this. I was at the Women's March on Washington, and I heard that there was a group called the Bikers for Trump. And and I knew that it was just going to be this really contentious juxtaposition, right? Like all these people with these pussy hats on and all of these Bikers for Trump. And so I sought out where they were, where they were, and I could see the semicircle of of marchers all in their you know pussy hat garb and then the bikers for Trump on the stage and it was really kind of an ugly standoff so i thought i'm going to test this principle i'm going to test this principle you could call it the principle of liking but first i'm going to try to be curious about how can i find an uncommon commonality and so i approached them and they this group and they looked at me like i was you know a dog 
pooping on their lawn, you know, and I approached them and I said to them, hey, would you guys take a selfie with me? And they all said no, just straight out no. And I thought, well, I'm going to find a commonality and test that before I find an uncommon commonality. So I said, well, you know, we're all Americans. I mean, if 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 some other non-American force came for us, we'd all be in the same same boat together. And that didn't work because the commonality of being an American wasn't a powerful enough. It wasn't uncommon enough. Everyone there was American. So I said, okay, here's the deal. I just recently took motorcycle, a motorcycle class, and I'm trying to decide between a Harley and a crotch rocket. And my question is twofold. One, which one do you suggest? And two, do you really think Donald Trump rides a motorcycle? And if so, would he be a Harley or crotch rocket? And we started talking about motorcycles. And then I said, would you guys take a selfie with me? And we all lined up and took selfies. Now, granted, one of the guys had a look of disgust in the background, but I didn't know it because I was in the front of the picture. But that is the power of finding uncommon commonality. And I love testing that. But of course, you know, I think you have to be curious first to, to, to explore that and to find those. They're always there. But to me, that seems like one of the first steps in, in the role toward a persuasive communication. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I, I do a lot of training classes. We do the introductions, tell us something unique about yourself where we have conversations, people introduce each other. Most of the time, people can connect on, we're all parents. But boy, if you get two people in there who have twins, there's going to be an absolute tight connection between those people because they can understand each other in a way that the rest of them can't, having to raise two kids who are exactly the same, dealing with two versus one. And so that's an uncommon commonality, as you would say. And the better you get at identifying those, the tighter you can get in with somebody and the more open they will be to a request for a selfie or something else. But it has to start with your willingness to ask questions, in your case, be curious to ask those questions. And then you have to be a good listener. You have to really pay attention. And people can tell if you're genuine. If you're just asking to kind of check off the questions, if there's this sense of you're just doing this to get to your thing, people can tell. And they're, they're good at taking it all in. You know, the, the look in your eye, the tone of your voice, your body language, they can tell if you're truly curious or if you're just have an agenda. So you were genuinely curious. I mean, you did want the pictures, but you were genuinely curious. And if people were in more of that state of mind and really gave room, space to the other side to really talk and ask questions and, and dug in, I think people would be amazed at how often the other side might reciprocate and allow you that same thing too. And even if they don't all do it, just the fact that more are doing it than right now is a win. Absolutely. Well, I would love to be able to discuss persuasion all day with you. However, I want to get to a few things that I call QCQs, quick curious questions, just to kind of get to know you a little bit better before we wrap it up. And you're a big athlete and fitness guy, and I know you've competed in powerlifting and bodybuilding and run marathons. And I think, do you have a like a second degree black belt in Taekwondo? Is that true? I do. Okay. I do. I thank my daughter for that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. She got you into it? She did. When she was a kid, I joined to spend time with her, and she's a black belt too, which Makes me feel confident as a dad that my daughter can handle herself. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I took Taekwondo when I was pregnant and got my ribs cracked. But you do have excellent taste in brown <laughs> in brown drinks. So my question is, what's on your training playlist for working out? Well, I have a lot of playlists. And the playlists that I usually listen to in the morning, I would not use in a public forum <laughs> because it's hard driving rock and it's just intended to get my blood pressure up and everything because I, I work out at four in the morning. I get up early and from four to six, I'm working out and I need that and a lot of coffee to, to kickstart me and get me going. So give me an example. On One example. Puddle of Mud, Godsmack, oh, Godsmack. Um, ACDC, a wide variety of stuff that, again, I think if some people heard the words, they might be like, really, you're listening to that? Okay. And then I've got my train my I've got my training playlist that when I played in in my training sessions people love it. They're like this is some of the best songs. I haven't heard these in a while. So different strokes for different folks. Perfect. Okay. So well cuz all of these things, a lot of this stuff and how to get a hold of you and some of the recommendations will all be in the show notes. So we got to put some Godsmack and Puddle of I don't even know Puddle of Mud. But I, you know, ACDC, of course. Now you're now you're curious though. You're going to go out and look for them, aren't you? I totally am, and I'm not even. I'm you know, I'm not even like a hard rock 
person, but I'm very curious about Puddle of Mud just because the name is great. So I'm going to have to research that and I'll throw it on the show notes so people can check it out. What is the one under $100 purchase that you've made recently that you value the most? Well, I'm going to give you two examples. Okay. So you said one, but I'm going to take liberty and give you two. The first one is sitting on my scotch bar shelf. My sister, who's a big scotch fan like myself, found a like $165 bottle of Balvini 17 for under $100. So she said, hey, I can get this for $97. I said, if you can do that, there's a $3 tip in it for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the other one was... Um, and you, I think you know this because you were friends on Facebook, but when my wife turned 52, my birthday gift to her was 52 weeks of presents. I gave her a, a present a week for 52 weeks, and I don't think any of them exceeded $100. And I would just lump them all into the category because it was so cool to get to do that because every week she had something to look forward to. And so you know, she was always excited on a Saturday or Sunday to open something. I was excited for her to see if she liked what I got. My daughter got involved in the act. And when we were at the mall, she'd give me ideas. We'd buy things and stuff. And every one of those was under 100. But every one of them was was great because it just benefited. All three of us got a lot out of it. What was one of the ones that you were most excited to give her? I'll tell you the one one of the ones that she was most excited to get was uh, it was a silly one that I got at a like a uh, five and under store, it, it was a hanging light. So she's the fixer upper around the house. And I gave her this light that she could like hang if she was under the sink doing something or wherever she was. And she loved that. Of course, she loved it when I gave her, I said, I'd play nine holes of golf with her. You know, that was one gift. And, but, but she really loved that hanging light. What did you think she would like the best? The nine holes of golf, yeah, which I, which she did. I mean, she's redeemed. I gave her a couple of those. I'm not really into golf, and so it's not my thing to take a day off and go play golf. I, there's a lot of other things I'd rather do. So, a couple of times, it was a certificate that I would take time off and go play nine holes with her. And so now I'm going to let my husband listen to this and say, you have one more shot next year at my birthday, but you're going to have to up it by one gift. And I'm going to show <laughs> him that if you know you really want to do something cool, you should take a page out of Brian's book because this is what he did for Jane. The final question, if you could convince anyone of one thing, who and what would it be? If I could convince somebody to do anything, I guess right now in the times that we live, if I could convinced Donald Trump to moderate his tone and behavior with with a vision right in front of his face the entire time, the good of the American people. It would be to convince him to do that. If at every turn that was hanging right in front of his face and he was constantly saying, this isn't about me, it's about the people. What can I do that will benefit the people? What principle do you think that you, if you could pick one principle what principle do you think you would use to achieve that? I know I said that was the last question, but I lied. Probably, I think with somebody like Donald Trump, a principle like scarcity, I mean, he uses that, but the principle of scarcity of maybe painting a picture of, Donald, do you really want to lose the opportunity to perhaps go down as one of the greatest presidents who ever lived? And getting him to think about, that's what I really want, is the path I'm on right now going to even get me close to it? That's a good one. And one where I'm curious about whether he really thinks that that is a possibility. And I bet you he does. I, I think, think, it, I think, I think he does. I mean, I think that would make a lot of people go, what in the hell? But I think that's probably a good one to grab, a good principle to grab. I have loved my conversation with you. And um, I think it would be fun to even have you back on to talk about some more of this at some point in time. I really, really appreciate your sharing all this stuff. You've been awesome. And I think it's, I think if people were more curious about what they are spending so much of their time doing, there could be some real power in our communication. And I thank you for shedding light on that. Well, it was my pleasure to be on here. And if we get to do it again, one thing I would like to change, I would prefer to do it in your studio. So we need to figure out a reason for me to come out to Portland and I'll bring Jane and then we'll just... I've never been to Portland, so we'll have a great time. Yes, and 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 you and I both share a love of, as I'm sure Stephen, my husband does, and Jane, of good scotch. But I might also have to bring in some tequila because that's my top level. Anyway, thank you so much, and I hope everyone enjoyed this as much as I did. Thanks. 
Brian Ahern is Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. You can find him at influencepeople.biz or on Twitter at Brian Ahern. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.